What a tremendous blessing and encouragement to, to gather together and sing with one another. Amen. You open your copy of God's Word to John 15. We get to finish John 15 today. I know. Here we go. Thanks for that encouragement. Yeah. We're making our way through. A couple more years in the Gospel of John and we'll, we'll be done. But uh, as, as you're turning there back in, in 2015... You probably remember following the Supreme Court's decision in uh, the Obergefell versus uh, Hodges case. Uh, there was a, a court clerk in Kentucky named Kim Davis who refused to sign uh, marriage licenses for, for two same-sex couples. And, and her initial uh, refusal to sign the, the licenses came uh, because of her, her Christian convictions, and that earned her uh, a... Uh, contempt of court and five days in jail. And then uh, the judge released her and allowed uh, deputy clerks to sign the licenses, uh, provided that she didn't interfere and prevent them from, from being issued. In December of that year, the Kentucky Governor Matt Bevan granted religious uh, accommodations to all clerks in a, by executive order. And then in April of the next year, 2016, uh, that was voted upon by the Kentucky legislature. And and you know codified into to law and it was granted unanimously uh, that uh, that all of the clerks w- would not have to to violate their conscience or their religious beliefs uh, and sign those and so following that uh, those two same-sex couples filed civil lawsuits against Kim Davis uh, two separate cases two separate uh, juries and uh, just this past week uh, there was uh, an update on those cases after kind of working their way through uh, multiple appeals and different things. The two juries uh, disagreed concerning the the damages or the uh, awarding of uh, those cases. One jury uh, declined all uh, damages. Uh, the the couples filed the lawsuit saying that they went through severe mental anguish uh, in. Um, by her not signing those. And one jury declined to award any damages. The other jury awarded $100,000 in damages. Uh, so $50,000 uh, to each of those uh, men. Uh, and now Kim Davis is, is seeking to uh, appeal uh, that second uh, verdict of $100,000 is a substantial amount of money. Uh, and I believe the, the couple that wasn't awarded anything, or those two men, uh, are seeking to figure out how they can appeal uh, that, that judgment. So I, I read that article and kind of updating on the, those two cases this weekend. My, my heart was grieved for, uh, for Kim Davis and her husband happened to, to pay out uh, a tremendous amount of money on a, a very frivolous lawsuit. And there are uh, several other cases that you, I'm sure you are uh, aware of pertaining to Christian bakers, florists, photographers, uh, web designers. Uh, and if, if they f- refuse to, to provide services to somebody uh, on the basis of their, their convictions, and I don't want to participate or celebrate something that would violate my conscience or the, the word of God, now, usually uh, there are lawsuits brought against them. Uh, and in that situation, the process itself is the punishment, right, uh, of having to, to go through and do that. I saw something uh, that... In 2017, Kim Davis uh, had racked up $222,000 in legal fees. A little over two years, uh, $200,000. That was eventually uh, the federal government stepped in and said that that needed to be paid by the state. But that's a substantial amount of money, and now uh, uh, potentially a six-figure sum of $100,000. 
that is a that is a significant power, right? When the the threat of a lawsuit might mean that you lose your home, your 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 livelihood, and when there's that type of penalty kind of looming out there, we as, as Christians we, we are facing a tremendous temptation to conform to the world, right? Because hey, if I can I can do this and life continues on as it has. But if I stand and stick to what Christ is calling me to believe and to do, if I stick to that, I may lose my job. I lose my my home, my retirement. So I really have to to count the cost. And that, that is a tremendous temptation. What are we supposed to do? Does Jesus want us to lose our homes and our jobs? Our lives and our livelihoods? You know, that, that is an important question, and it's beginning to be no longer theoretical. Right? Uh, in, in the past, it's, it's been theoretical in, in other times and in other uh, places around the world, but it's beginning to be very realistic here in the United States. So what are we to do? Now, how do we respond? We've been w- working through this passage in John 15, talking about the, the hatred of the world. And, and this passage is becoming ever more relevant. But it answers these questions of what are we to do? And in John 15, Jesus is continuing to, to prepare his disciples, the 11, for his departure. He dropped a bomb on them uh, in chapter 13 and says, I'm leaving and you can't follow me. I'm going away, and, and the, the, these 11 disciples are in crisis mode. And their leader is leaving them, and they don't know what to do. And so Jesus is, is teaching them now, instructing them, seeking to prepare them. As we've been walking through John 15, we, we see how he has prepared them for when he is no longer with them, what they are to do. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, Jesus told the the disciples, that they are to continue to abide in or remain in him. Don't, don't depart. Don't wander away. And the same chapter, verses 9 to 16, he commanded them multiple times that they are to love one another. That's how they are to relate to uh, themselves within the church. And then in verses 17 to chapter 16, verse 15, we see how they are to interact with the world around them. And we've been studying a, a portions uh, of this already, but I want to kind of wa- talk through the, the, the overall flow of this section from uh, 1518 to 1615, where Jesus is, is telling the disciples how to interact with the world once he has gone. And verse 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So there's, there's the reality of what is going to take place. Though the world crucified Christ. They're not going to treat his disciples with, with greater hospitality. No, he goes on to say that the reasons for why they uh, will not only hate Christ, but because uh, they, they, will hate, uh, they will hate all those who follow after him. That's explained in verses 19 and 20. Or 21. Then in verses 22 to 25, which we studied several uh, two weeks ago, Jesus outlines, in essence, how the, the world's rejection... Uh, and their their hostility towards him is inexcusable. He says, I've come and they've heard what I've said. They've seen the miracles that I've done that nobody else has done. And that's given them a greater knowledge and a greater accountability. And we talked about we are accountable for what we know about Jesus. 
And the gospel, hearing it, will either save us or it will bring a greater condemnation upon us if we reject it. What Jesus outlined in verses 22 to 25. What we're going to study this morning in verses 26 and 27 is really how the disciples are to respond to the world's hatred of what they are to to do in response. At the beginning part of the next chapter, Jesus is going to to outline that they should they should expect to be tossed out of the synagogue. They they should be uh, have an expectation of alienation from the culture around them. Then in verse five to eleven, Jesus is going to emphasize that even though they're they're going to be alienated, the spirit is still going to be at work and he's still going to bring conviction about sin, righteousness and the judgment to come. And then in chapter uh, 16, verses 12 to 15, he's going to say that the spirit of truth is going to, to come and he's going to continue to guide them into all of the truth. So there's this, there's this flow to this section of how do we interact with the world. And we're coming to, to the end of chapter 15, verse 26. And this is what Jesus says, what we'll be studying this morning. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness also. Because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is, again, seeking to prepare his disciples. What do we do when the world hates us? Well, how are we to respond to that? And he's preparing them to stand firm in a hostile world. And not just stand firm silently, but to do something with our voices. To testify, to proclaim who Jesus is and what he has come to do what he has done in our lives. But we are not alone in our testimony about Christ, because in this passage what we're going to see is there's two separate testimonies. When the church body proclaims who Jesus is and what he's done, there's actually two testimonies uh, being given and taking place there. The first is the testimony of the Holy Spirit, which we see in verse 26. Then in verse 27 we see the testimony of the disciples. Well, we'll look at these one at a time. But looking at verse 26, where Jesus speaks about the testimony of the Holy Spirit that's going to be proclaimed to the world. It says, when the advocate comes. Now, this is the third time that that phrase has been used or that the Spirit has been mentioned here in John chapters 14 through through 16. Uh, and older translations have different words uh, for uh, how to translate this word, Greek word called uh, the paraclete or parakletos. Uh, one uh, Bible translation note says that finding an appropriate English translation for this Greek word is a very difficult task. No single English word has exactly the same range of meaning as the Greek word. It says comforter used by the older English versions appears to be as old as uh, John Wycliffe. But today it suggests a quilt or a sympathetic mourner at a funeral. Counselor is adequate, but it's too broad in contexts like marriage counselor or camp counselor. Helper or assistant could also be used, but it seems to suggest a subordinate rank. So I love what the, the legacy standard has here. It translates this word as advocate. An advocate was, uh, is chosen because the most basic fundamental meaning of the, this Greek word, parakletos, has to do with someone who comes to another person's aid, to mediate, to intercede. You come on behalf of somebody else. It's like the idea of a lawyer coming and representing and defending, coming to your aid. 
Now, it's mentioned uh, earlier in John uh, chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Then in that same chapter, verse 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this, this mention of someone who's going to be sent uh, to help and to aid the disciples. Jesus is going, but he's going to send the Spirit. He's going to send the Advocate, the Helper. And this, this Helper who's going to be coming, he's here in the passage that we're looking at. Jesus says that I'm going to send him to you from the Father. What we read in 1426 says that the Father's going to, to send the Spirit in the name of Jesus. And later on in this verse that we're studying now, it says that he proceeds, the spirit of truth who proceeds forth from the Father. So this is, uh, this is important to, to start to think through what is being described again. In, in John's gospel, Jesus pulls back the curtain and tells us about the inner workings of the triune God in a way that no other gospel author does. Uh, We get to peek behind the curtain and see what God is doing and how he is doing it. Uh, And this verse uh, is actually of significant debate. You could say it's a theological can of worms. You may not be familiar with, like, this is a can of worms. Like, this this caused division in the church for the first thousand years of church history. Like, really? This right here? Yes. The question is, does the Spirit proceed... Only from God the Father, or does the Spirit come from both the Father and the Son? And the, the, the dividing line in church history was uh, the Western Latin-speaking church uh, believed that it was the, the Spirit, not it, sorry, forgive me. He, the Spirit, proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. Uh, but the Eastern, the, the, the Greek-speaking part of the, the Roman Empire, uh, claimed that the Spirit only came from the Father. And this was enough to actually split the church uh, in uh, the 10th century. This is a very significant debate. And this is how we, we ended up having a Roman Catholic church and an Eastern Orthodox church. Uh, this single question of, uh, it's known as the filioque clause. The filioque means... Uh, in Latin, of the, the and the son. Do we agree on and the son? And because the Eastern Church said, no, we don't agree that the Spirit is sent by the Son, uh, we're, we're separating out. And so this is a, this is a significant thing uh, here. And, and Jesus is speaking not only about sending the Spirit after he departs, but he's also speaking again about the inner working of the, the Trinity, uh, about the, the ontological nature of the Spirit. Ontology is the study of being. Uh, and, and this is very, very significant. And Jesus says that he will, he will send, right, when the advocate comes, whom I will send, future tense, to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So he says, hey, I will send and he will bear witness. Those are two future tenses. But in the middle, where he says that the, he proceeds from the Father, that's a, that's a present tense. This is what is taking place at that point in time. And uh, it is, it's significant. 
in, in the, the word order kind of there in the, the Greek emphasizes that he comes forth from the Father. The Spirit of truth who from the Father is proceeding forth. Now, I know sometimes when we, when we get into really, really deep theological concepts, I mean, some of you may be questioning, like, why does this really matter? Right? We can be honest. At least one of you is thinking it. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know at least one of you is thinking, why, does this, why is this really significant, whether the Spirit comes from the Father alone or from the Father and the Son? I, I love what, well, what Sinclair Ferguson says. This is going to be a lengthy quote, but he, he, just, he puts this together so well, of tying the significance of what Jesus is saying. He says, Jesus is pointing the disciples back to a time when time was not. And he says, in this night of crisis, right? Remember, Jesus has just dropped the bomb. He says, I'm leaving you. And they heard that like an hour ago. And they're still reeling from that. So in this night of crisis, he's drawing back the curtain on the mystery of the Trinity. He's telling them that in him, they have been brought to know the Father with whom the Son ever lives face to face. And from whom the Spirit ever proceeds. Furthermore, he is announcing that he himself will send this same spirit to them from the Father. We can only have, he can only have authority to do that if he is God the Son. No mere man has authority to send God. He says, if any verses in the Bible are likely to convince us that the doctrine of the Trinity matters, it is surely these. It is often thought to be the most speculative and least practical of all Christian doctrines. But the truth must be the reverse. Otherwise, why would Jesus teach these things in a time of crisis? That's an important question, right? His disciples are reeling, and why does he bring up this? The Trinity must be the most fundamental and the most practical of all biblical truths. Here in this dark hour, Jesus is casting an anchor for his disciples into the very heart of the being of God. It is as though he is saying, my friends, I know the opposition may be fierce, but do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and bear witness to me no matter what. Be on your guard and ready for persecution, even hatred. But do not think that your adversary's resources are greater than yours. Keep on being my witnesses. You are not alone. The helper is with you. He will come to indwell you. And remember this, like you, he was with me from the beginning of my ministry. But unlike you, he was with me from an earlier beginning when I, the word, became flesh. Indeed, he was with me from an even earlier beginning from the beginning that had no beginning. In the beginning when I was at the Father's side, John 1, 1 and verse 18, when all that existed was in the beginning, God. Then he says, to borrow an expression used by C.S. Lewis, we might say that the disciples are being given access to deep magic from the dawn of time. When the helper comes to them, they will be resourced by heaven and anchored to God, the Trinity. Before him, all human opposition shrinks. That's profound. That's what we need to think about and to meditate on. So we've been walking through these chapters where Jesus is continually going to say, I'm going to send you help. He's going to send the greatest help, the greatest helper, the greatest advocate that we could ever ask or hope for. That is who Christ is sending from the Father to us. 
We have his aid. Jesus says, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, that's who is being sent. And he says, he will bear witness about me. He will testify about me. We might ask, well, what exactly does that look like? How does the coming spirit testify about who Jesus is? I would say he does this in two specific ways. Number one, that the spirit uh, from this point forward is going to work through the apostolic authors to inspire scripture. Second Peter one verse 21 says for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but, but men being moved by the Holy spirit spoke from God that the spirit is going to work in and through those men to write down the thoughts of God for us to read, behold, and to study even today. There's a tremendous testimony about Christ. 2 Timothy 3.16. If you were in Awanas, you know this verse. And if you don't know it, if you, and you were in Awana, give me your Timothy award. Okay? I want it back. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture in exact number is breathed out. It's God breathed, inspired, and is profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped Adequate, complete for every good work. Scriptures are inspired by God. That is the first way that I would say the Spirit of Truth testifies about Jesus. But then a second way, the Spirit testifies by leading believers into the truth of the Scriptures, right? And we see that in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? Scripture is breathed out by God, but then what does it do? It's profitable in our hearts, in our lives, to teach us, to to train us, to instruct us, to show us when we've gone off path, to help us get back on the path. That is the work of the Spirit through the Word. And that is significant. Later on, as we're going to study in just a couple weeks, if you turn over to chapter 16, verse 12, I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The triune God is going to minister to our hearts and in our lives through the spirit who dwells within us. Profound, profound theology. And, and apart from that, we will not be able to, to repent. We won't be able to believe. We won't be able to do anything. I, I was marveling, and we've been reading through the book of Revelation this month. I think it's at the end of Revelation 6, uh, when, when the, the judgments are, are being poured out upon the, the nations. And the nations, at that point in time, says the kings and rulers, and everybody recognizes that this is the great day of the wrath of God. But what do they do? That they recognize and understand that they're experiencing judgment, but they don't turn to God. They say, this is his wrath, and they go hide in the mountains. They, they go run into the hills, and it's apart from God working supernaturally in someone's heart, apart from the Spirit ministering to somebody, nobody, none of us would believe. Every salvation is supernatural. We have to recognize that and realize that we are only saved by the grace of God and the working of his Spirit in our hearts and minds and lives. 
But if this is the, the testimony of the Spirit, this should also be the, the testimony of the church. Love what John MacArthur says. He says, The Holy Spirit's primary ministry to the lost world is to testify about Jesus. Likewise, the message of the church is not political activism, social reform, or psychological self-fulfillment, but Jesus Christ. Right? The message of the Spirit, the testimony of the Spirit, should be the testimony of the church uh, and of individual believers, which is how uh, Jesus gets to the very next verse in the second testimony that we see, the testimony of the disciples in verse 27. It's inseparable from the first testimony. It's the, the Spirit of God working through human disciples that's going to proclaim uh, and work in, in the, the church uh, and in the world right now. Verse 27 says, And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. The, the idea is that there is to be a shared focus with the Spirit by these disciples and all of those who would follow after them. That they would testify about who Jesus is. And uh, the, uh, the Spirit has been sent to testify, and the disciples must do the exact same thing. Now, the, the main verb there in verse 27, that of you will bear witness there's two different ways that that could be translated because there's two. It could be a command in the Greek or just a statement of fact. They look exactly the same, and we have to kind of judge by the context. I think the better way of viewing it would be that you must also testify. Uh, and I would say this because if it was going to be future tense and you will also testify, uh, I think he would have used the future tense. Uh, he uses the future tense to speak about the Spirit's future uh, testifying. Uh, but it, here, it's present tense. So I think it's probably best to understand it as a command uh, and to, to grasp that there's, a, there's an obligation here, right? Uh, if, if the Spirit who is testifying about Jesus is dwelling within us, then we also must testify. We must be in agreement with the, the Spirit uh, and testify about Jesus as well. And this twin testimony of the Spirit and the disciples is on display in the book of Acts. Now, Acts chapter 5, verse 32, and speaking, the disciples speaking before the Sanhedrin says, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave, us, uh, gave to those who obey Him. So there's a connection here. This is our testimony, but the Spirit is also testifying to you uh, as you are hearing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you turn over there, we talked about this uh, this morning. The Apostle Paul speaking about how uh, he came to the Corinthians and what was his goal. His goal wasn't uh, to sound great and to puff up his own name uh, in their eyes. His goal was to exalt Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, this is the emphasis of the Apostle Paul coming and preaching. He says the, the, the power on display when the, the word of Christ is proclaimed is not the human individual. It's the spirit working and moving. That was his goal to always exalt Christ. He says, I determined to know Jesus Christ and him crucified and nothing else among you. This is what I came and proclaimed. This was his message, and that is perfectly in alignment with what we see here. 
Right? The testimony of the Spirit should be the testimony of the disciples. That proclamation. I love what, what Charles Spurgeon says uh, about this. Because you may think, well, but that's the Apostle Paul. Right? I think he's kind of being humble. He says, I didn't come with you in, with words of wisdom. You're like, Paul's a brilliant guy. I think he was very persuasive and he knew a lot. So maybe I can't do what the Apostle Paul did. And Charles Spurgeon addresses that. He says, I mentioned Paul because what he was, we ought every one of us to be. And though we cannot share in his office, not being apostles, though we cannot share in his talents or in his inspiration, yet we ought to be possessed by the same spirit which actuated him. And let me also add, we ought to be possessed by it in the same degree. He says, do you demur to that? I ask you, what was there in Paul by the grace of God, which may not be in you? And what had Jesus done for Paul more than for you? He was divinely changed. And so have you been if you have passed from darkness into marvelous light. He had much forgiven. And so have you also been freely pardoned. He was redeemed by the blood of the son of God. And so have you been at least so you have professed to have been. He was filled with the Spirit of God, and so were you. And if you are truly such as your Christian profession makes you out to be, owing then your salvation to Christ, being debtors to the precious blood of Jesus, and being quickened by the Holy Spirit, I ask you why there should not be the same fruit from the same sowing, and why not the same effect from the same cause? In essence, if we understand that when we are proclaiming and telling others about Jesus, that the Spirit is going to use that, why are we not more bold, right? We see the apostles, they were common, ordinary men, unlearned men. And God used them. He filled them with his spirit and God used them. He sent them forth and they changed the world. The, the expectation would be that we would be able to do some of those same things, that we need to be willing to go forth and proclaim that we are all called to testify about Jesus. There's a command and an obligation here. And this is what we see in the early church. We, we've talked about this in the past, that in the early church, in the book of Acts, there is a pattern of uh, everybody in the church going and proclaiming the gospel, going and, and preaching. Uh, Paul in, in Ephesus, uh, in Acts 19, Paul spends three years there. Uh, and we see in Revelation, having read that earlier this month, there's seven churches mentioned in chapters two and three. Paul was in one of those cities. Ephesus. The other six were probably all plants off of Ephesus, which means people came and heard from Paul and those who were with him, Titus and, and Timothy and others. They came and they learned, they heard, and then what did they go do? They went and they also testified. They went and proclaimed. They went and told people about Jesus. That's how churches get started and that's how churches grow. There's a wonderful book by Randy Newman called Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism. It's a fascinating book because he does this massive survey of just asking people, how did you come to faith? How did you come to know Jesus? And he found four common uh, threads, important lessons concerning how people come to faith, uh, generally speaking. He says, first, the process of coming to Christ takes time. Now, while God certainly can work instantaneously, most often he does not. So people first tend to come to know Christ gradually, over time, wrestling with truth, beginning to read the Bible. Right? That was my own testimony of gradually reading the Bible, wrestling with what it says, what it was calling me to, 
before coming to faith. Second, says God uses a large and diverse cast of ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. That people tend, uh, secondly, to come to faith communally. So gradually and then communally. Usually you are not coming to faith on your own. You're coming to faith because somebody else reached out to you, a roommate, a friend, a relative. They reached out to you and began to talk with you about who Jesus is and what he's done, right? I guess some nods. This is probably your your testimony. Uh, So people come to faith gradually. People come to faith communally. Third, there are layers of drama that lie beneath the, the surface. And people's stories reveal a tapestry of experiences, struggles, realizations, and transformations. He says this, people come to, to faith variously. Sometimes people are wrestling with uh, the implications of faith or the existence of God or do I believe this? Uh, there, there's a variety of things and, and ways and means that the Lord uses to draw people. Uh, but there's something that, that triggers and they begin to, to read and search uh, and ask questions. So people come to faith gradually, communally, variously, and then forth. And I would say most importantly, supernaturally. And nothing is too difficult for God. He can and does draw people to himself. Uh, and that's the, that's the work of the Spirit, right? Nobody says, I'm going to give myself a new heart. Right, what was Jesus' message to Nicodemus? The teacher in Israel, he says, you must be born again. You can't do it of yourself. And he says, well, I have to, how can a man go back into his mother's womb? I don't understand this. He says, no, 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 you're, you're missing the point. You must be born again from above. The Spirit must work to give you new life. And that's what we are to to cry out to God for. But but I want to say and emphasize this. That you are able to share the gospel with others. You are called to do that. You are capable of doing that. It's commanded here. And, And again, there's that temptation. Well, if I go share, if I have this conversation... What, what, what question pops into mind? What will they think of me? How are they going to respond? Is this going to ruin my relationship? Are they going to think that I'm weird if I go tell them about Jesus? They might. But then it goes back to, well, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you really believe that he is able to save? Do you really believe that you are a sinner and everybody else is a sinner in need of his grace and his reconciliation and forgiveness? Are you convinced of that? There's a, that temptation to lose sight of that in the moment. And to try to keep things going smoothly without any conflict or any uh, waves in our relationships. But I would point you back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, How will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot by men. If if the church becomes exactly like the world, what do we have to offer the world? Salt loses its saltiness. It's good for nothing. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But whenever we have those opportunities to testify about Jesus, right? There's the, the open door, and then the question of, am I going to seize this opportunity 
and say something about how Christ has worked in my life. When we seize that opportunity and speak, Christ is put on display. The light shines. But when we have that opportunity and we don't seize it, what have we done? Taken a big basket and put it over. Right? And we've, we've actually crawled underneath the basket. I don't want to shine. I'd rather just stay under the basket. Right? So that's the reality of what's, what's taking place. If we have professed faith in Christ, what are we called to do? To proclaim. If the Spirit who testifies about Christ is in us, He's there to empower us and to equip us, to help us to obey this command and this obligation. This is an important passage. We have to know and to realize and to be convinced that we not only have an obligation to proclaim Christ, but a capability of proclaiming Christ. Some of us here will be more successful evangelists than others. Some of us are better at, at, at talking and, and more comfortable in that way. But everybody is called to do this with, with varying degrees of success and fruit. But we're all called and commanded to testify. And I would say that, that personal testimonies about Jesus and how he's worked in your life, that is a wonderful pre-evangelism tool. That's a wonderful thing to have prepared and to be able to talk with others about and then get to the point of, those follow-up questions. So what do you think about that? What do you think about how Jesus has worked and changed me? You've probably seen the change. Would you like to know Jesus in that same way? See, that's that evangelism question, that, that call for a response. And faithful evangelism is exactly that. Throwing the gospel out there, sowing seed, and, and allowing God to bring the fruit according to his will. We'll draw your attention back to the end of verse 27. He said, you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. And when he says that, he's not saying from the beginning of time. He's speaking about the beginning of his ministry. And this is important because this is a part of the qualifications of being one of those 11, one of those apostles, the sent ones. In Acts chapter 1, when the, the apostles gather together and they say, hey, Judas has gone out from us. Let another take his place. What were the qualifications? Uh, Acts chapter 1, a couple pages over, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Right, so there's an emphasis of uh, to be qualified as an apostle. You had to, to be there for the baptism, and then you had to be there for the resurrection and to see the risen Christ. That, that's the, the body of knowledge that, that an apostle had to have. They had to be there from the beginning. But I think also here, uh, as Jesus is emphasizing this, over the course of John's gospel, what have we seen? There's been a lot of people following after Jesus, but a lot of them go by the wayside. A lot of them stop following Jesus uh, when it gets tough. That was John chapter 6. Jesus turns to the 12. He says, are you also going to go? Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's a lot of disciples who don't stick it out, who, who follow for a time and then abandon Jesus. And there's a, there's a subtle reminder here 
to stick with Jesus, to remain faithful to him. And, and so Jesus emphasized it here, and John's also emphasizing it as he's writing this gospel account. Close to 60 years later, towards the end of the, the first century, there's an emphasis on the value of remaining faithful and walking with Jesus, abiding in him over a long period of time. And there's a subtle exhortation and encouragement to that. They're being there from the beginning. And I would say this, your family needs you to stick with Jesus. Your family needs that. Your neighbors needs you, need you to stick with Jesus. Your neighbors and co-workers, they need you to put Christ on display in your actions and in your words. That's the testimony that is needed in the world around us. Are you willing to be salt and light? Are you willing to testify or do you want to be under that basket? Even though the world hated our Lord, even though the world continues to hate all who follow after him, Jesus is saying that there should be two testimonies sounding forth into that world that is marked by hostility and animosity. Twin testimonies that are inseparable, the testimony of the Spirit and the testimony of human disciples. This is what should be going forth. And we have to keep these things in mind. That as we go, we're not going alone. That we're going empowered by the triune God to go and tell others about Him. And this should give us confidence and encouragement. I quoted Sinclair Ferguson earlier, and I'll quote him again. He he has a wonderful picture about the the hope and courage that this passage should instill within us. He's a a Scottish, uh, he's got an amazing accent. So if you ever have the opportunity to listen to Sinclair Ferguson, do so. But he says this, he says, a memory from childhood comes back to me in this context of this passage. He says, as young boys, we used to play football, meaning soccer, uh, in our street. And he says, the father of one of my friends had played for a Scottish professional team. And sometimes when he came home from early from work, he would go out and play with the kids. And he would usually go to the team that was losing. But I love Sinclair Ferguson says, but... He says, if you were on that losing team, no matter how many goals you were down, you knew that there was no way you were going to lose. Uh, this professional soccer player just came onto a game with kids, right? You're going to destroy everybody now, even if you're down uh, by a bus. And he said that what the, the confidence that they had, no matter what, what, no matter what the score at the beginning, we're going to win. And, and that's the attitude that this passage should give us. No matter how hostile the world is right here and right now, we're going to win. We just need to be faithful. We just need to be willing to go out in the power of the Spirit, Him leading us, guiding us, us prayerfully depending upon Him. We need to go out and testify. The Spirit's going to testify with us. He's going to be there with us the entire time. We, We need to keep this in our mindset and be willing to go. And this isn't the only time Jesus said this. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May that give us hope. May that give us courage. And may we grow in faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray.